Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Hi, Global Investors. Before we get started with today's episode, are you looking to finance your U.S. real estate investment as a foreign investor? Contact UniversalCommercialCapital.com. They do not require any credit history, employment, income verification, or permanent residency status. All you need to have is the minimum 35% down payment in a U.S. banking institution for two months. Rates start at 6% with a 30-year term. The whole approval process can be completed in 30 days. Call 888 888- 334-9039 or email them at info at universalcommercialcapital.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today we have John Brixen. John is a director with Old Capital and based in Dallas, Texas. John and his team at Old Capital are actively involved in arranging financing on commercial real estate properties throughout the U.S. with a focus on financing value-add multifamily properties. Prior to joining Old Capital in February of 2018, John underwrote and financed over $1 billion in commercial real estate loans as a lender with a large national bank and a Dallas-based real estate private equity fund. So thanks so much for being on the show, John. Thank you, Charles. Glad to be here. And um, if you don't mind going into a little bit more uh, information, background on yourself uh, prior to starting with Old Capital. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up uh, in Kansas City. I went to college at DePaul University in Indiana. After I got out of school, um, I went to go work for a large national bank, went through their uh, credit training program. And then after uh, going through their program, I was placed into the commercial real estate financing group. Um, So I was at that bank in Chicago for a few years uh, where we were underwriting and originating, closing, and managing commercial real estate loans across all property types. Um, And so I joined that bank in 2011. 2014, I relocated to Dallas, where I joined uh, a large real estate private equity fund, a multi-billion dollar fund that was uh, investing in commercial real estate properties, buying distressed commercial real estate loans, and then also uh, originating new commercial real estate loans. And so <clears throat> during my time there, I was able to uh, you know, basically underwrite and look at everything from hotels to office, industrial retail, uh, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, you know, able to see everything and you know, able to, to work on loans ranging from uh, a $5 million loan secured by a shopping center in Opelika, Alabama to working on a, you know, $120 million office building in in New York to, you know, doing multifamily. So I was able to get a pretty uh, wide variety of the different property types in commercial real estate. And um, after working in the industry for six or so years, I decided that I really wanted to focus on a niche and focus on a specific property type. And um, after seeing all the different property types, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, really the best property type was multifamily um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, I mean, for one, I guess the most obvious is that multifamily during the downturn uh, had the lowest losses and the lowest lo- loan losses. And then during the, uh, the correction and during the, the market run up, um, you saw the most appreciation and, and, you know, some of the best returns. We're on multifamily. So I just felt like it had the best 
risk adjusted returns. Um, and then, you know, the other thing with multifamily as well is there's just a tremendous amount of uh, tax benefits uh, when investing in multifamily. And it's also the only property type uh, where you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the market. Um, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they don't finance, they don't finance uh, office, industrial, self-storage, uh, retail, hotels. They really only f finance multifamily and also mobile home parks. And, you know, given that Fannie and Freddie are sponsored by the government, um, they're able to offer the best interest rates, the best terms, et cetera. So multifamily to me was an area that I wanted to focus on. And in the Dallas-Fort Worth market, um, you know, I had gotten to know the old capital guys just through being a lender with uh, in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I mean, they really have been kind of the, the go-to guys for BNC multifamily in this market for a long period of time. So I had gotten to know Paul Peebles, who's the head of Old Capital, and uh, was fortunate enough to join their group in February of 2018. So almost two years ago, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, I, I've met him before at a, at a conference. Um, what is, uh, can you explain a little bit more about Fannie and Freddie? and uh, explain a little bit about um, how they're backed by the government if they're insured or they're guaranteed because there's different loan programs in the United States and uh, why investors consider it, I consider it like the gold standard for multifamily loans where you want to end up. Can you explain more why that is? Yeah. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, their, their mandate uh, you know, from the government, from the Federal Housing Financing Authority, FHFA, really is to expand housing across the U.S. Um, and so they do that in two different ways. They, they support the single family residential market by purchasing residential mortgages and then taking those mortgages and then securitizing them or selling them into the bond market. And they will guarantee, the, the U.S. government will guarantee um, a portion of those mortgage bonds that you know, effectively makes them uh, you know, a better credit for investors and more attractive to, to, to buy or, you know, obviously lower the probability of default on some of those bonds. So they do that in single family and then they do that on commercial multifamily properties as well. Um, and commercial multifamily properties, that's properties that are five units and above. So that's really what I focus on. Uh, and commercial multifamily, you know, you're, you're right in that it is the gold standard. Um, you know, I think if you're investing in multifamily, you ideally want to focus on properties that could qualify for a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. Um, and so what I always tell people that are getting into multifamily is that you want to focus on properties that are either four units and below that could qualify for a conventional uh, residential mortgage, or if you're going to buy five units and above, you want to buy properties that are either already worth 1.5 million or could eventually be worth 1.5 million because at 1.5 million property is just large enough to support a $1 million loan from Fannie or Freddie. And that's generally their minimum loan amount is $1 million. Um, so, you know, for instance, if you buy an eight unit property and if you increase the value from 500,000 to 800,000, that's great. But when you go to do your cash out refi or you go to sell, your main source of lending is going to be local banks because the property is too large for a residential mortgage because it's more than five units, but then it's too small for Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac because it's not large enough to support a million dollar loan. And so you're kind of in this no man's land where it's too big for residential, too small for commercial, too small for Fannie and Freddie. 
um, and local bank terms, you know, 99 times out of 100 are never going to be as attractive as Fannie or Freddie, just simply because they're not sponsored by uh, the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. The other thing too is that um, I've had it when I refinanced out a smaller multi uh, mixed use property I had a few months back and I had to use a local bank. And it was very difficult finding one that had longer term. So no, the other thing too with the Fannie and Freddie is that you're having the ability to have long-term in some cases, fully amortizing um, debt. Whereas with your local banks, you might find one. I found one that did a 25 year fully amortized, uh, but they had a program for it. But normally it's going to be five years, seven years, 10 years. And that means in those five, seven or 10 years, you've got to refinance, you've got to reappraise it. You've got to go through the whole, the whole thing again. It's very expensive, time consuming. And if interest rates went up, which there's not too much, <laughs> if they're going down, I don't know, but they're probably most likely going to be going up in 10 years. Within 10 years period, it's going to be more expensive on your debt. And when you purchase the property, knowing that I'm going to at one number, and then you find out later on, uh, it's more expensive. It might be, you know, you might, might be cost prohibitive to actually own the property. So, yeah, no. And I mean, there's, there's definitely, a, um, certain situations where bank financing makes the most sense and just getting a regular loan from a community bank makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know, just comparing banks with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you know, banks, they're going to have, uh, there'll be full recourse, you know, meaning that there's a personal guarantee that comes with a loan. Fannie and Freddie will be non-recourse. Um, local banks, you know, the best amortization most likely is going to be 25 year amortization. A lot of them will require a 20 year amortization. Um, you know, I think there are a handful of banks in certain markets that'll do a 30 year am, but for the most part, it's 25 is the best you're going to do. Whereas Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they'll do up to, you know, three to five years of interest only followed by 30 year amortization. And then in terms of, you know, LTV, local banks, you typically limited to 75% LTV, whereas Fannie and Freddie, they'll go up to 80% LTV. And then um, obviously that the interest rate is, is better with Fannie and Freddie. The rates are oftentimes lower, you know, right now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, you know, rates are as low as I, you know, I, I quoted a loan yesterday, the rate was at 3.5% oh. on a uh, Fannie Mae loan. So local banks, you know, right now they're likely in that 45 to 5% range. Um, so all around it can be better. Um, you know, like I said, sometimes it does make sense to finance with a local bank. You know, one of the benefits with, with bank loans is the, uh, the prepayment penalty. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans, you know, their loans typically have what's called a yield maintenance prepayment penalty. And what yield maintenance is, is it's the, it is the net present value of all remaining interest payments on the loan. So basically what it's doing is it's guaranteeing the lender that even if you pay the loan off early, say it's a 10 year loan, you want to pay it off in year six, the lender is guaranteed to receive hundred percent of the interest payments as if you're holding it to maturity. So for instance, let's say you do a yield maintenance loan, you pay it off, you know, you want to pay it off in year six on a 10 year loan. Well, at the time of payoff in year six, you're going to have to pay the net present value of those remaining four years of interest payments. So it can be uh, quite a bit more expensive. And then obviously, or sorry, not, maybe not obviously, but, but one alternative is they do offer what's called step down prepay. So your prepayment could be on a 10 year loan, it could be 5544332211, where it's 5% of the loan amount in year one, 5% in year two, 4% in year three, et cetera. 
Um, on the flip side, local banks, their prepayment penalty is oftentimes, you know, it might be 1%. There might be no prepayment penalty at all. So if you're buying a property and there's significant upside in the value of the property, um, it's better to finance with a bank or maybe even a bridge lender where, you know, if you can buy it, go in, improve the property, increase the cash flow, increase the value. And then after two years or three years, or maybe even just one year, you can do a cash out refi, pay off that bank loan, uh, not have any prepayment penalty at all, and then refi it with a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan or, okay. or sell the property. With the, uh, the yield maintenance, is that now for those last four years, let's say for your example, is it going to be the difference, say that loan was at 4%, is going to be a difference between four and a treasury, you know, like the 10 year treasury or anything, or is it going to be, they have to pay the whole thing? Yeah. So, so yield maintenance, prepayment penalties, the, the calculation is, is pretty complex. And unfortunately the other negative thing with the, with the yield maintenance prepayment penalty is you actually can't forecast what that prepayment's going to be. Um, so, you know, basically the way yield maintenance is calculated is, you know, as I mentioned, it's the net present value of all remaining interest payments on the loan and the discount rate that's used as part of that net present value is what gets really complicated because that discount rate is this, you know, it's a complicated calculation that basically looks at what are treasury rates at the time of payoff, what's the, the interest rate on the existing loan, you know, what's the difference. Mm -hmm. And so um it's you know it's yeah it's very complicated yeah 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 there, that's there why are. you because you have no idea in six years let's say what the the you know what the treasury is going to be so that's why you can't predict right yeah. yeah i mean the main thing to know with yield maintenance prepayment penalties is you know if yield maintenance is really driven by two different factors it's driven by interest rates so if interest rates decline during your loan period, and if, and if the, the market interest rates are lower or significantly lower below your, the loan on your, you know, your, your existing loan, that will increase yield maintenance. And then the second thing is time. So the mo more time left on your loan, the higher your prepayment penalty is going to be. Um, and actually what we've seen in the current market is people that financed uh, some of their acquisitions in 2016, 17, 18, with a yield maintenance Fannie Mae loan, well, interest rates have declined uh, quite a bit since 2017. And so what people are finding is that these yield maintenance prepayment penalties when they go to sell a property have, have really gotten you know, really high. So we're seeing a lot more uh, loan assumptions, uh, assumption and supplementals or owners that are just stuck because they haven't had, you know, enough appreciation to justify prepaying and paying off that huge prepayment yield maintenance penalty. So a supplemental being a junior mortgage. So it, so it like a second mortgage on it to take out some of the equity. Right. Yes. Yeah. So supplemental loan, what that is, is uh, one thing that's a, a benefit of, of Fannie Mae um, and Freddie Mac and Freddie Mac under their, their conventional program, not under their, their small balance program. So Freddie's small balance program is one to 7.5 million. Their conventional program is $5 million and up. And so one of the benefits of, of both of those programs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is you, you have the ability to do what's called a supplemental loan, where if you buy a property, you finance it with Fannie Mae. Um, let's say you buy it for, $10 million and you finance it with an $8 million Fannie Mae loan. 
well, if you increase the value from $10 million to $12 million um, in year three or year four, if you, if you want to get a supplemental loan and pull some equity out, or if you want to sell the property, the buyer can assume the existing loan and they can take out a supplemental and they can do a supplemental up to 75% of the new value and that down to a 1.30 times debt service coverage ratio. So I guess under that example, you know, if you buy it for $10 million, you finance it with an $8 million loan. Uh, if you increase the value from $10 million to $12 million, the property would now be eligible for a loan up to 75% of 12 million, which I guess would be 8 million. So that's not a great example, but let's say you increase the value to 15 million. Well, at that point you get 75% of 15 million, which would be 12 and a half million or so. Yeah. It's a great way of taking money out with avoiding all of the fees uh, that you'd have to do prepayment penalties and stuff like that, especially if the interest rates have increased and you're locked in at a lower rate then it just is even better uh, right. because now your the majority of your debt um, <clears throat> is at a lower interest rate. And then the money you're just pulling out the additional equity is at a higher as well as it's fixed at that amount too. So you now can plan for it. It's not variable or anything like that. Yeah. And the one thing I would say about supplemental loans is, you know, the minimum supplemental amount is typically $1 million. And so, um, you know, if, if you're a buyer and you're financing it with Fannie or Freddie, um, I wouldn't necessarily count on the supplemental loan. It, it might be there, but you have to make sure that, you know, one, uh, the property is large enough to support a million dollar supplemental. Um, and then two, you know, that, you know, it's actually, they actually have supplemental under the program you're financing with. So like, you're not going to be able to do a supplemental loan with a, a $2 million Freddie small balance loan because it's too small. Um, you want to be able to get to that min minimum million dollar in supplemental loan proceeds and you actually can't even do supplemental loans under Freddie's small balance. Uh, one last thing too, before we move on to um, is with the interest only, if you have a 30 year amortization, so you get two years interest only, does that mean that it will start off two years of interest only, which is understood, but the full 30 per, at the start of the third year, that's when the, the amortization starts. So principal and interest pay down starts on third year for the 30 years. So it's really a 32 year loan. Is that correct? Um, 32 year. Yeah. So usually it's, it's like a, it, it could be like a 10 year loan or a 12 year loan, but the principal pay down is based on a 30 year amortization schedule. And so during your loan term, you'll be paying down principal for the the, you know, after the interest only burns off, they'll be paying down principal, but it's based on a 30 year schedule. So at year 10 or year 12, when your loan matures, you'll have a balloon balance to pay down. But you know, at that point you will pay down, you know, a significant amount of your loan. And, you know, if there's been some appreciation, you should be in a point where your LTV on the existing loan balance is, you know, 60, 65, 70% LTV, and you can get a refi. Or okay. so. so whatever the amortization is, that's what you're paying the interest on. And then the principal would just start, for instance, after the IO interest only period starts. So, okay. Right. All right, perfect. So what are the requirements usually for obtaining a agency loan? Say it's a property, it's going to be um, a property over one and a half million dollars. So it's a, a property that you guys will, you know, Fannie and Freddie will loan on. Sure. Yeah, I'd say the most basic requirements are, you know, for one, the property needs to be stabilized, which means the property needs to be above 90% occupied. 
Um, and then from a borrower standpoint, um, there's a few different things that Fannie and Freddie look for. For, for one, um, they want the key principals or the guarantors that sign on the loan to have a combined net worth equal to 100% of the loan amount and then combined liquidity equal to 10% of the loan amount. So let's say you're buying a $5 million property and you're financing that acquisition with a $4 million loan. They want you and your partners to have a combined net worth equal to $4 million and then combined liquidity equal to $400,000. And net worth um, for all of our California and Florida uh, owners or investors out there, net worth can include your primary residence. Uh, get that question quite a bit. So um, you can include your primary residence in that net worth calculation. And then liquidity, that's going to be all marketable securities and cash in the bank that's held outside of retirement accounts. So any marketable securities in a 401k or an IRA, that would not count towards, uh, towards liquidity. Would that count toward net worth? Yes. Okay. It right. would. So that's, that's the second requirement. And then the third uh, key requirement with, with borrowers is Fannie and Freddie, they typically want at least one of the guarantors that sign on the loan to have experience as a manager or member of a multifamily uh, investment property. So they want you to have multifamily experience. Um, and the way they define that experience is if you have experience signing on a loan on a multifamily property or as you know a guarantor or sole owner on a multifamily property. So investing as a limited partner uh, wouldn't count as experience. Um, you know, acting as a property manager for a multifamily property wouldn't count as experience. They they want you to be you know part of that ownership group, or part of that um, that manager group. I've also found too that having the experience in the uh, geographical area too, so they know that market of where it is. So if your your experience is fifteen hundred miles away, it might not fly. That's when you might have to bring in your property manager as a. Uh, onto the, onto the general partnership, to right. share the experience. Sure. Um, so our podcast focuses on uh, foreign investing in us real estate and how do the terms and requirements of a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan differ for a foreign investor? Yeah. So I guess, uh, the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, Fannie and Freddie with a lot of their guidelines, and this is also true with foreign investors is that it, each, each deal is different. Um, and, it really is dependent on the story. Now, I'm not going to say it depends uh, as the answer, but there's a few key things I would say, you know, requirement-wise um, with foreign investors, with Fannie and Freddie. Um, the first thing is, um, you know, just kind of down the fairway uh, guidelines. And, and again, it, it, can, it can change just depending on the situation. But um, down the fairway kind of guidelines are that, you know, if, if it is foreign national investors, um, that are own that own this property or, or signing on the loan, uh, Fannie and Freddie will typically require that uh, they have net worth equal to two times loan amount, and then liquidity equal to twenty percent of loan amount. So in that that four million dollar example I used earlier, they're looking for the the guarantors to have combined net worth equal to eight million dollars, and then combined liquidity equal to eight hundred thousand dollars for a four million dollar loan. Okay. All right. So the second, the second key requirement or the second item uh, to be aware of is a lot of times um, Fannie or Freddie, if there's a guarantor that is a foreign national, a lot of times they'll require that um, a lawyer in their home country 
signs a letter that basically certifies that they're a citizen of good standing, that they have no legal issues in the country. It's really an opinion letter. So a lot of times you'll need to engage um, a, an attorney back in the home country to either draft or sign a, a letter that's drafted by an attorney based in the US. So <laughs> for instance, our group, Old Capital, we're, we're closing a loan right now for some Israeli-based investors. And one of the, one of the investors is an is a Israeli foreign, foreign national, and they are needing to have a lawyer uh, that's based in Tel Aviv um, sign a, uh, one, of these, one of these letters. Third thing to, to be aware of is if, is if you are raising money from foreign investors, um, if, if any individual foreign investor, and I had this come up on a, uh, a loan that I closed in October, if any of the foreign investors have more than 10% ownership in the borrowing entity, that foreign investor will be required to, uh, a, a background search will be required. So we had to, basically we had investors that were investing, you know, they had 12 to 15% ownership in the borrowing entity. And so we had investors that had to, uh, we had to basically get copies of their passport, um, get their social security number for their home country. And then we had to run uh, credit and background on, on those investors. Um, and it wasn't really a, a difficult process. It was pretty straightforward, but just something to be aware of. And so what I would tell you is that, you know, with foreign investors, every situation is different. Um, you know, Fannie and Freddie, they might have guidelines one month that can change the next month. I'd say the most important thing is to, uh, you know, engage the lender, engage whoever you're working with on the loan early in the process, uh, get an org chart early in the process because the, the key question is going to be how is that partnership structured? Is it 100% foreign national investors? Is there one foreign national investor that's partnering with a US-based investor? Um, if it's investors that have green cards, how long have they been in the US? Do they have US-based bank accounts? Do they have US-based jobs? There's a number of different factors that can influence how foreign investors are underwritten. Um, you know, we've, we've financed, uh, you know, a ton, I don't want to say hundreds, but a, you know, a significant amount of, of foreign investors in the past and have been through these hoops uh, many times before. So, um, you know, we're happy to help out with, with anyone, but I would say just uh, know that the structure of the partnership early in the process and vet it with the lender um, early in the process. Yeah. One thing, John, we were talking about earlier before we started recording was that um, when when we're accepting money from limited partners that are foreign, we make sure that the money's coming actually from a U.S. bank account. And um, so the money's been sent there. They have an account there. Uh, normally, like we like to see is they have a U.S. LLC and they're investing through that. And then, of course, withholding all that stuff is another story. But the main thing is that for the syndicator, for the general partnership group, um, it's much you're taking money from, say, an account or you're receiving funds from an account at, say, Bank of America or Wells Fargo. Um, they've already done their vetting, you know what I mean, on that, which is a lot more intense than really any syndicator could really do without, you know, going through a number of different hoops and information is probably not even available to general partner syndicators. So that's one way as well. It's protecting yourself is taking money from them. As you know, the money's been vetted, the person's been vetted, and they've gone through that extenuating circumstance. I know you worked at a bank before and you did this. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I think that's a great idea. And I actually hadn't heard that before. Um, you know, if you're going to accept money from foreign investors, uh, make sure that the money that they're 
sending to you is from a, a bank that you know, and maybe a US-based bank, like a, like a Bank of America, or maybe it's an international bank like an HSBC. Um, but you're absolutely right. I, I worked at a bank and we had a process called AML KYC. AML is anti-money laundering. KYC is know your customer. And these large banks, they have entire departments dedicated to AML KYC, or they have hundreds of people that are employed that do nothing but underwrite and vet and uh, you know, basically make sure that whoever is sending them money or is keeping money at their bank, uh, you know, the source of that money is clean and uh, legitimate. Yeah, because they're not going to risk it, especially you know, one of these large banks aren't going to risk it over one person investing through them. So like you said, it's so important for them to make sure that funds coming in, which is they want as much money as possible to be deposited, that the funds coming in are as, as clean as possible. Um, so, but uh, awesome. Um, one thing here with coming where we are in, uh, in the market cycle, I always like to speak to people, especially people that deal with lending. Um, if we have a pullback in the economy, how does that impact multifamily lending? So one thing too is I think real estate investors don't understand is that the debt portion of the real estate, like we we're saying 75% loan to value, 80% loan to value is actually the bank, right? And people kind of don't, I don't think investors, when they're especially when they're syndicating, they spend as much time vetting out lenders as they should. Um, they're spending time on trying to raise money for you know value adding, you know renovation of the property for the down payment, all this kind of stuff, which are extremely important. But eighty five percent, eighty seventy five percent of the deal is being financed um, by the lender. They're, they're they're really your biggest partner. Yeah. So if we're having a pullback in the economy, how will that affect? Uh, impact multifamily investing, multifamily lending? Yeah. I mean, what I would say is, um, you know, I think a lot of people that are, that are in the market now and that have been in the market for just a few years and, and they haven't experienced an actual downturn. I think there's this perception that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're always willing to lend 80%, three to five years of interest only, you know, really low interest rates, regardless of what the market conditions are. And, you know, while it's, while it's true that Fannie and Freddie are, are more active in the market than maybe banks or CNBS lenders or life insurance company or other lenders are during a downturn, um, Fannie and Freddie can, can pull back too. So, you know, during a downturn or, you know, right now they, they might be willing to go to 80% and say a market like Wichita Falls. But um, if there's a downturn and there is a pullback, they might only be willing to go to 75% or maybe 65% or maybe they won't, they won't lend in that market at all. So, um, I would say they, they do pull back. They, they do become more conservative, uh, more focused on who the borrowers are, who the sponsors are, um, you know, what's the total net worth and liquidity, what's the business plan. And I would say for people that are in the market now, uh, you know, the best thing you can do is, is just to be prepared for a downturn and, and the way you can kind of um, be prepared or, or winter, winterize yourself, you know, if you will, for when the winter is coming is to um, have long-term fixed rate financing in place, um, you know, with, with a lender like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or, you know, maybe even a CNBS lender, that's one way. And then also just having cash on, on hand, uh, cash is king during a downturn and, um, you can run in a situation where, you know, maybe you have a, a loan that's maturing in the middle of a recession and maybe you need to pay down the existing loan balance a little bit to, to make the deal work or to find a lender or, you know, having cash on hand because that's when the best, when there are the best opportunities is, is during the downturn. So just having enough cash and reserves and then also um, having, you know, long-term fixed rate financing on, on any properties you already own. Okay. 
Okay. And uh, you work with a number of real estate investors. What are the most common mistakes you see that they make? Uh, most common mistakes that people make, I, th I would say is, you know, not thinking about their exit and how they're actually going to sell the property and, you know, who the actual buyer is for the property. So, you know, it, it, it might, it might look uh, attractive to finance a property in a tertiary market with a Fannie Mae loan with yield maintenance prepay. And you might think, hey, I bought this property uh, at an eight cap and I financed it with a 80% LTV Fannie Mae loan with three years of interest only. And it's a $2 million loan or a $3 million loan and I'll just sell it <clears throat> in four or five years. Um, well, you know, it's going to be difficult to sell that property if you have a yield maintenance prepayment penalty on it um, because the buyer is going to have to assume that loan. Um, you know, there's not as many buyers in a small market as there are for a larger market. So I think the largest or the, the biggest mistake I see is, is people just not um, thinking about their exit and how they're actually going to, to get out of a deal. Yeah, no, yeah, I can see that. There's, it's different when you speak to different professionals involved around the, the investment, the real estate investing and attorneys, lenders, brokers, and they all have their own things that they've seen that is common on their end. So it's always, it's always great getting that perspective of uh, what you see. Yeah. And I would say, you know, one other thing too, is just from a financing perspective, um, you know, a lot of people, especially less experienced investors, all they really look at are, is the interest rate and the loan amount and the interest only and what's on the front end. And, you know, these aren't residential mortgages where the only thing that matters really is the rate. Uh, there's so much more to it than that. And the other thing too, is that, you know, if, if you, if you engage uh, a lender or you engage multiple lenders or you engage one mortgage broker or multiple mortgage brokers and one person is offering terms that are way better than, than everyone else, um, you have to ask, you know, what's that, what are those terms based on? How are they underwriting the cash flows here? You know, how are they sizing this loan? Um, you know, this mortgage broker that I've worked with on three other loans that I've done uh, is telling me that I can only get to 70%, but this person I've never closed with is saying I can get to 80% in five years of, of interest only. You know, why is that? And so part of the reason I'm saying this is I'm, is I'm also vetting and I've had, you know, I've had borrowers who have gotten term sheets from, from other lenders or other mortgage brokers that, you know, I, I don't think can be delivered. Um, you know, I only quote terms that I think are, are, uh, possible. I mean, obviously we're going to push for the best scenario there is. Um, but I think a lot of times people, uh, tend to, they don't, they, they want to believe what's being put in front of them. And so they don't vet, uh, the term sheet and they don't vet the terms. And I would encourage anyone, um, that is investing in multifamily to work with someone that, uh, you trust and someone that will, you know, show you the good, the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. The ones that also have the experience, I had that problem uh, years back with getting a bank loan and um, it was where the person I was dealing with didn't have expertise in that, in that part, that asset class, what it was, right? And um, the, the appraisals came out completely different and all the, everything swayed differently. And if it was dealing with someone, especially even at the bank or with a bank that specialized in it more and have vetting that up front, I would have saved a lot of time. So it's, it's very important that just because you're getting a term sheet, just you're getting your pre-approval, whatever it is, um, you have to make sure it's actually worth something and sure. um, they actually know what they're doing. So with the asset class and, 
and uh, this, what you're trying to do, like you said, the business plan for that property. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you very much, John. So how can people learn more about you and uh, Old Capital? Sure. Um, so anyone can email me at jbrickson, that's J-B-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, at oldcapitallending.com. Or you could visit our website, oldcapitallending.com, uh, that has all of our uh, contact information and our bio. Um, and then the last thing, I'd put in a plug for the Old Capital podcast, mm. um, which is a really popular podcast on iTunes, uh, focused solely on multifamily investing. Um, so people get a lot of value out of that podcast. So any one of those uh, outlets, uh, you can get a hold of me or learn more about me. Okay. Sounds great. What I'll do is I'll put all the information into the uh, podcast and YouTube notes. And I want to thank you again for being on the show today. All right. That'd be great. Thanks, Charles. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi guys, this is Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in investing in real estate and you don't know where to begin, set up a free 15-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.